All right, we are live. Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Uh, tonight, we're going to be reviewing and analyzing the 2019 German horror film, Hagazusa. And no, I didn't just sneeze. That's actually the name of the movie, Hagazusa. Uh, Hagazusa, a uh, heathen's curse, um, which interestingly enough derives from the word, Hagazusa comes from the word Haxa. Haxa, which is a commonly used term for witch in the early 1900s. Um, this movie is kind of a dark legend, essentially, about a young woman named Alburn, uh, who as a young girl lived with her mother, Martha, in a remote woodland hut, right? We've all been there. We've all lived in a remote woodland hut. So has Alburn. Uh, during this time, nearby villagers ostracized both women as witches. Um, and after uh, her mother, Martha, dies, Alburn is orphaned and lives uh, the rest of her life, essentially, in isolation. Um, however, she also cares for a newborn daughter, fathered by an unknown man. So during this time, villagers continue shunning Alburn uh, until a woman named Swinda takes an unexpected interest in her. Unfortunately, Alburn's friendship with Swin Swinda ends up being rewarded by cruelty and exploitation. Um, and haunted by her dead mother's whispers, Alburn takes a turn into darkness, intent on transforming her mind, body, and soul. Like a lot of our, a lot of our movies can be classified that way, I realize, taking a descent into darkness. It's like 90% of our movies. Uh, maybe it's because we've taken a descent into darkness. I don't know. Uh, so there's been a lot of comparisons with this movie and Robert Eggers' 2016 film, The Witch, uh, which we did, The Witch, which we did a full review and analysis of on our channel. Definitely check it out. Um, and I agree with that comparison as it relates to like mood and tension um, and maybe the use of dread between the films. There are, however, quite a few differences between these movies. The largest being that The Witch has like a very obvious supernatural component to it. You know, we see in The Witch, we see witches levitating, uh, causing supernatural hallucinations, and we even get a glimpse of Satan. Uh, Ben's hero, as a matter of fact. My understanding is that that is the only reason Ben saw the movie. He saw, you know that song, There Goes My Hero? I, I just imagine Ben hearing that song in his head as Satan comes out and offers her, you know, to live deliciously, essentially. Anyway, uh, but this movie's a little different. Um, there's nothing overtly supernatural going on in this movie, like whatsoever. It's navigation into darkness via the natural world and without the guidance of any obvious malevolent supernatural entity. Um, and that may be the horror of it, I think. Maybe one of the things we'll talk about tonight, perhaps we'll disagree on that a little. I, I think like there's some merit to the idea that this movie presents us with something supernatural happening, but I think we can all agree. I hope we can all agree. It's definitely not obvious, right? Like I, I think this, this is a film that's very open to interpretation as something very naturalistic. Is it being a naturalistic movie? Um, one that feels kind of like a dream, right? This movie is oftentimes hazy and atmospheric, and then at other times very clear and very intense. So think of the mushroom trip scene in the woods versus the masturbating to goat milk scene, right? Like one is uh, very hazy and atmospheric and one is very clear and intense. Um, so for me, this was like a difficult movie. This was, this was a film that was very difficult for me to pull much out of. I had trouble finding any like clear referent for what the writer and director wanted to convey in this movie. Um, you know, I, I'd like to think I'm pretty good, you know, I, I'm pretty good at going into a film and saying, hey, this is a movie about X, right? And argue three or four different reasons why I think that's the case. But with Hagazusa, it was kind of a struggle for me to weave together all the strands into a single cohesive point. And I think what I got from this movie, and I have a, a sneaking suspicion 
but this will be quite different from the rest of you and maybe largely more simplistic, is something like the idea that you can learn to believe something false so deeply that you eventually turn it into a truth. Right? It's, it's like being told all your life that you're never going to amount to anything. And so maybe despite your proclivities for f success, you just believe the lie. And as a result, you acquiesce and eventually become the thing that people say you are, right? You see yourself as a loser. And so you become a loser, right? So in this movie, we see Auburn, uh, you know, believed her mother to be a witch, right? She was told all her life that her mother was a witch. They ostracize both her and her mother from the community. They live on the outskirts of town. Think of the scene with the priest where he explains you know, ridding the town of sacrilege. Everyone in the town probably has crosses in their homes, right? Whereas Martha and Alburn have a goat skull up on the wall. They basically have Black Philip hanging on their mantelpiece, for God's sakes, right? So we can see that they're further ostracized from the community by the fact that um, at the very beginning of the movie, when Martha gets sick, no medical care is given to her. They can see that she has the plague, uh, but they literally just look and then they leave her there. There's no indication that she refused any medical care. They just leave, right? So Alburn has past memories and trauma that have like this background noise of sacrilege and ostracization. Ostracization? I feel like I'm saying ostracization. Ostracization. That's a word. I think that's a word. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if that's a word, but I think you know what I'm saying. And 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 ultimately witchcraft too, right? Like these all are things that stem from her mom, right? Um and I, I really now that I think about it, think of the one of the last scenes in the movie where Auburn is in front of the fireplace. Uh, with her dead baby in hand and her face starts to like morph into her mom's. I don't know if you guys caught that. So I, I think I think the culmination like of all the major occultish actions we see in this movie from, uh, you know, the last memory she has with her mother, with the hair sniffing and snakes, to the goat masturbation, to the rat and the pee in the water, to the baby eating. Great movie, by the way, as I'm describing all of this. There's family, family film. Um, Like all of this is... Auburn manifesting everything she's believed about her life all along, because that is what her society, her very limited society has told her, that her mother was a witch and that she's a witch too, right? Is the, I saw this movie as witchcraft without witches, right? And the thing is, you know, to me, this movie was so ambiguous that like, who the hell knows if that's even in the ballpark of what this movie's about. That's one of my frustrations with this movie is that it was so open to interpretation that I, I just, it was a little too much for me. Um, you know, Hagazusa is way more art housey than I typically like in a horror film. Maybe that's why I viewed like most of this movie, actually all of this movie as being quite literal. Um, and I'm curious if any of my co-hosts saw this film as maybe something more poetic. I, if, if you did, I'd really love to hear what you think this movie is about. Maybe we can start there with sort of the literal and the figurative, or maybe the natural and the supernatural, just sort of general thoughts from you guys about Hagazusa with regard to those two issues. What do you think? Um, so I agree with the vast majority of what you said, Noah, especially as it relates to um, the style of the film. I mean, you talked about it being a little bit too art housey for you. Um, I would sort of jump on that as well, say that it's a little bit too art housey for me. 
Um, and specifically what I mean by that is the pace of this film is incredibly slow. And, and I was primed for that because I saw Ben did a, a shortcuts review of this, a two minute analysis of this. And he specifically said, this is like the slowest of burns. And it never has a critic been more right than Ben was when he said that. Um, so I, I was primed for it. I, I, I was primed for it to be slow. I don't know if I was primed for it to be this slow. Um, but yeah, in, in response to your question, I think this film is all metaphor. I can't actually, I, if you try to parse out this story, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense on a plot by plot basis. It was, it's, it's a woman's mother dies. She lives in a place by herself. She has a mysterious baby and then uh, a lady tries to befriend her, and then the lady gets her raped, and so she decides to poison the water supply and piss in it. Then she takes some magic mushrooms, drowns her baby, eats it, and something happens with a fire. Like, those are the plot points uh, of, of this film. So I, as a plot, I don't know if you could say that that holds together as an interesting cohesive story what does the the parts of this film that did work for me was when i divorced myself from trying to put a narrative structure on this movie and instead tried to this is going to sound really fucking weird, but I'm going to say it anyway. Just feel the movie um, and just kind of experience the film and and talk about and, and try to uh, understand emotionally and viscerally what the juxtaposition of the some of the really well shot, well uh, good cinematography uh, with some of the 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 images and the juxtaposition of those images and what those were doing to me as a viewer. And in that sense, I could sort of talk myself into enjoying uh, this this movie, but uh, as as a whole, it's I think it needs to be read on a metaphorical level. So once we make that decision that this is a metaphorical film, then the question is, is what is the metaphor? What is what we see on the screen related to um, what emotion is it related to? What point of view is it related to? What thesis is it related to? I think you give a the best uh, and I struggled with that question. Your answer is the best best one that I've heard. And of course, the only one I've talked about this film with is myself. Uh, so that's that's the best uh, sort of thesis that this film can. I, I can envision you looking in the mirror and going, feel the movie, Jim, feel, <laughs> feel the movie. I was, I was looking in the mirror going, what the fuck? Even is Hagazusa. You were you were doing you were doing the raw mirror dance, like just yeah. feel the feel the movie, Jim. Feel the movie. Gyrating uh, my hits and everything. Yeah. All right. Well, we're getting into fantasy land now. This is getting a little too uh, <laughs> sexy. Yeah. I. I. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Well, so that's interesting though that you. So I guess I saw my interpretation as being one that's not very metaphorical, one that's very literal. I. I mean, maybe we maybe flip with uh, different sides of the same coin. I think like I saw 
I saw everything is actually happening in the movie and not being like, uh, well, I think there, there yeah, was yeah, room. I think everything that happens that we see in sc on screen happens in the movie. I mean, I think she does. Well, that that's, yeah, that's her baby. Like, I think those are <laughs> yeah. things that occur, but what, but that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense except like magic mushrooms make you drown your babies. Like, is that, is Nancy Reagan making this movie? Like what's going on here? That's not just, a, ju just say no thing that happens. But, but I, but I, I think, I, I think the thing we pull from it isn't largely, I don't think it's that large of a metaphor. I think this is quite literally a story of a person go running through the motions of her believing herself to be a, a, a witch or, or beginning to believe or in the process of believing or actually believing she is a witch and manifesting that and, and, and creating it and making it happen. I see that as like something very literal. Um, I see, I mean, obviously the things in the movie that happen are literally happening in the movie. I don't know what it would mean for those things not to happen. Like the things that happen in the movie are part of the movie. I get it. But um, I didn't see like any real large, I guess maybe what I'm saying is poetic in a metaphor. I, I don't know. I saw my interpretation as being very literal and all of the scenes that exist, the, the phases, I think there's like three or four chapters in this as being very, um, uh, being very jumpy and not making much sense. But I think that was the point that when you create this sort of false narrative about who you are in light of the things you believe that society tells you or the things that you understood about your family, it's maybe just me again, working out my shit that you, that life gets schismatic like that, that it doesn't make much sense. You're, you're delving into a world where you believe a lie. So I, I saw this to be Quite literal, but I think we may just be talking. I think we may just be saying the same thing. I don't know. Yeah, we're probably using the same terms to refer to the same. All right, thing. Ben looks like he's going to kill us. Yeah, go, ben. And, ben, go. yeah I, I got to say that the, uh, the the interpretation so far, the analysis has been quite unkind, and I'm I'm honestly pretty surprised that um, that you that you weren't able to or didn't rather. I'm not going to say able to again because like no, I do think that you were correct in saying that this is definitely open for interpretation. It doesn't offer you much in terms of explanatory power, and there's not some big there there is a there is a closing obviously like in the final act labeled fire very aptly mm -hmm. um there is a definite closing to i think the transformation that we see in this movie but i don't think it really offers you any sort of resolution or catharsis and so i think that's probably why a lot of people might not enjoy this because it doesn't follow what you might expect from from a typical narrative structure uh, in fact, I, I honestly know thought you might enjoy it for that reason, because I think we both commonly really, really enjoyed Climax. And so like that's going to mm -hmm. be another film where I see a huge sort of lack of narrative structure um, that's quite well done, that's incredibly art house, um, and yet yeah, still has true. like a really powerful sort of affect that it delivers to you. Um, a couple notes that I do want to say about this, though, before I really jump into kind of like my my interpretation and explanation. So this movie is actually a 2017 film as opposed to 2019. Uh, was released a the year following The Witch. Um, interestingly, though, it, it took two years to develop this film, and so um, the director and writer uh, Lucas Fiegelfeld took two years. He was making this before The Witch came out, um, and I, I feel like in in, in um, interviews he has actually explained that he was quite uh, frustrated with the fact that The Witch came out while he was making this movie. No and shit. And he changed he changed its name for that very reason from Hexen, which was literally translated in the German to Witch, uh, into this older term um, that sort of gets at kind of like the same thematic element. Um, 
So obviously we're set in uh, 15th century medieval Austria in the Alps. Um, it's supposed to be a setting where there is quite a bit of superstition. Obviously, like the church is very present there, a lot of superstition around pagans and heathens and so on and so forth. They even call out uh, sort of a, a demonization of Jews that people might have had in league with heathens. Um, you know, sort of like following along with the uh, the typical sort of stereotypical viewpoint at that particular period in time. Um, and I don't think this movie is really supposed to be like metaphorical. Uh, I, I do think it is supposed to be literal, um, but it is heavily thematic. And I think really what it sort of gets to, I think, is not necessarily that maybe Alperin thought that she was a witch, but it's it's really kind of like a meta narrative about how certain people, uh, women, were ostracized as witches in the 15th century and medieval, you know, wherever all around the world by the church. And so that's another big reason why I think it has very strong ties to the witch. And another reason why I think it's incredibly interesting because it does sort of explore that, that oppressive side of something that we often in our culture see as being sacred and a powerful force in society. It's actually quite marginalizing and quite harmful uh, specifically to women. So I see this also as a very feminist film. That being said, okay. So to get back into this, yes, I do see most of the film as being very, very literal. Um, you know, we see this intro shot of Albrun with her mother. She's already been ostracized. Her and her mother are there. You don't really know where the father is. It's kind of like left up to question who the hell her father is and like why that presence isn't there. Why are they alone? Um, later on, I think we get that answer, though, because Albrun, like obviously she's lived in the same house. She lives on her own also. Um, and it's probably because she was taught to fear the people that were closest to them, the village, the the friends that she could have made, they literally show up at this house when she's a little girl in these scary fucking costumes with like goat heads on like this weird satanic shit to try and scare them and make them feel like they're not wanted. We're going to get you, get out of here, treating them like heathens, treating them horribly. I think that really sets up why through the rest of the movie, the Alburn stays just absolutely by herself. And that also, I think, delivers kind of the impact that we see whenever she tries to make a friend with Swinda who ends up betraying her exactly like what she would have expected to happen if she were to show up in this village and ask for help right like she sees the exact same thing that if anything her mother probably would have taught her that these other people are dangerous and they will try to hurt you you know what I mean like that sets up a, a literal not a metaphorical a literal rape scene where um Alberone is taken advantage of by that opening up by that vulnerability and i think that's really the key to understanding Alberone's father her past we have this movie or this this movie this mother who is off by herself with no men around like i think it's implied that she was probably raped bringing Alberone into the world the same thing happens to Alberone. she has a child no explanation this is probably something that's happened to her multiple times being out here in the middle of nowhere with no defense People just probably come out and attack her and victimize her because she's all by herself. The thing with the goat skull, she fully relies on goats, these goats, for her livelihood. That is her food source. That's her only means of trade with the village. That's what she relies on. So after being raped, when she gets back and sees her goats slaughtered, I think that's what pushes her over the edge. But it also kind of explains because the importance of these goats, maybe that's why she has a goat skull, because like these goats are literally symbolic of her life and death. Her life depends on them and their death equals her death. I mean, it's it's a little bit meditative to have that skull, I think, right there is kind of like what would what would be in place of a cross like that is her sacred religious symbol is this thing that she relies on for her very life. So when she gets back and all that's destroyed, I think that's really what pushes her over the edge to take her child to go out into the woods into this fervor, take these mushrooms and have this crazy trip, probably playing on some of these superstitions that she's been raised in in this culture and in this life that she's had that starts to 
eat away at her mind even more. Honestly, what I see at, at, as on the whole, like this is probably another tale of a descent into darkness. It is a transformation, once again, without a happy end, just like I think we see in Midsummer, just like in The Witch, and just like very, very good horror films that I've seen in the past that, that don't really offer you any sort of light at the end of the tunnel. They offer you a transformation, a change, a descent into darkness with no light of hope at the end. I mean, there's honestly, for me, there's there's a ton of stuff in this movie that seems to be absolutely fantastic narratively, not just aesthetically. Yeah, let me let me uh, clarify, like the transformative part of this movie, um, I thought was was that was the best part. The best part was seeing Auburn change. Um, and I think it was just a question of what that change is supposed to represent and why is that change happening, right? Like that's that's the question for me. And I saw the answer to that as being like you, very, very literal. Um, and I think that the way I'm looking at this about her descent into something, I, I see it as um, more than just a descent into darkness. I think that that darkness is there because of the communal aspects of ostracizing these two women to sort of cyclically repeat the same, like her mom probably being raped to have Alpern, Alpern being raped to have her baby and, you know, being limited and being isolated and taken advantage of. It's, it's at the point in the movie where, um, you know, her friend, uh, believes her to be a heathen when she decides, or it's right around that time when she decides that she's going to introduce her to her, her husband and, and, and she's going to be raped. You know, um, there's a lot of talk about the heathen and the Jew and, and sacrilege and the unclean and, and not smelling the right way. There's a, that part of it I actually like the most. I think my criticism was how much work it took me to sort of pull that point from it. It was it was a lot harder than it typically is for me. Um, and you're, it's interesting to uh, compare this with Climax in the sense that they're both insanely artistic movies. Climax maybe even more so. But it was strange in Climax. I I, I just was able to immediately go, oh dude, I th I like I dig this because I think this is what's going on here. I've seen this movie, I've seen Hagazusa twice, uh, twice, two or three times, I think two times. And each time I was like, oh, man, this is, it." maybe because it was so slow, because it was so slow, it was such a slow burn, and there's not much dialogue to hang on. I don't know if you know that. I mean, there. I mean, you do know that because you've seen the movie, talking down to you, like, did you know there's not much dialogue in this movie? There's definitely not much dialogue going on in this movie, and I think I rely on that to pull the things I want to pull out of it. Like, there's a shitload of dialogue in Climax. Um, so... So yeah, I, I agree with you in the transformative aspect. And those are typically horror movies I like too. I like horror movies where someone becomes something else and especially becomes something else where there's nothing cathartic at the end. Um, but I mean, let's go ahead and just contrast this with The Witch. I felt like The Witch was a very clear, I mean, what did we used to say? Robert Eggers said it's a Puritan's nightmare, right? And in that context, we, we see the film from the perspective of a Christian maybe something that I'm very familiar with and I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with maybe some of the pagan stuff in Hagazusa, but I, like, I know what it means to be a Christian to have that isolated set of looking at the world a particular way and to see my existence couched in the other, the other out there. Um, and uh, so I, it was, it was just a little more clear, I think in the witch there's, there's, there's more stuff going on. I think it's more direct um, in Hagazusa. There are maybe 10 minutes where there's just no dialogue and it's just, scenes of of the setting and, and very slow change and I, I think for me that just doesn't I, I just my my attention span doesn't last that long maybe um I don't know I don't know what it was but um I just want to say the transformative part this is a long-winded way of saying that I agree with you the transformative part was there I caught that and it's the thing I like the most about the movie
I'm going to sound like a dumbass right now. Um, I fell asleep multiple times trying to watch this. I could not fucking sit through it. I'm, I, I tried so hard so many times to sit through this and it's, it's the, the mood in it is just like, oh, oh. I don't fall asleep in movies either. I'm not one of, you know, I have a lot of friends that just fall asleep during movies all the time. There are those people that fall asleep. I don't normally do that. I can't. And I fell asleep so many times, but I made it through the movie today. Thank you very much. I, I made it. Uh, <laughs> but um, it was hard to get through. And I know this isn't the only movie that is a slow burn that did that to me. I tried watching Meek's Cutoff uh, a couple of days ago which is like people who are going on the org they're in Oregon and they're, they have their covered wagons and stuff. And it's hardly any dialogue, lots of shots of ambiance, beautiful cinematography of these long scopes of uh, land. And I was like, Oh gosh, it's Meek's cut off again. <laughs> like, ah. um, it's hard for me to sit through these movies and it just might be something that's wrong with me. Uh, it's not even like a criticism of the film. But it's a really hard thing for me to sit through. I start to fall asleep. I get tired uh, trying to watch them. Um, that being said, from finally being able to stay awake during certain parts and not wake up randomly with people with Elmer's glue in their mouth and going, what the hell is happening? <laughs> what is, why is there Elmer's glue? The weird vomiting scenes. Um, My understanding so is that was Jim's favorite scene, too. <laughs> I, I thought of him too when I watched that. I was like, oh. This has been added to the list of films that makes Jim gag. Congratulations, <laughs> yeah. Ben. Thank you. I think uh, I think you're responsible for two of them. So thanks, Ben. Thanks. Now I need to get one. So Noah gave you one. Ben gave now I now I have to try yeah, to find something to keep you. Maybe Videodrome will make me gag, but it, uh, it it's it. it's pretty it, but it, the, next week. <laughs> We'll see. Um, no, uh, this film, like, honestly, I have a hard time figuring out the, whether it's metaphor or whether it's literal too, but mainly because the baby, the baby was a baby. And then the baby was like maggoty and smaller. And I'm wondering if it's possible she had been imagining the baby had grown uh, all this time. And I don't know. I've, I'm going to have to probably watch certain elements of this again because um, it, it's... That's a popular theory uh, only because uh, if you remember... Weird. Yeah, if you remember when uh, the, her friend comes over and it's at the point where uh, Albert picks up her baby when it's crying where the woman looks at her very strangely like something's weird, something's wrong. It's almost like the baby's dead already or maybe not there. And then she also said that she smelled like rotten. Mm-hmm. And it made me wonder if she was hanging out with a corpse. And uh, the only reason why that even springs into my mind is uh, I've read some Nordic stories, um, some really messed up Nordic stories from the past, you know. And there was the story of this king whose uh, wife died and he stood by her corpse for three years uh, would not leave her. The whole entire like village started to go to crap because he wasn't really leading. He just couldn't get over the grief of his wife. And it wasn't until uh, they figured out a way to get him away from the corpse. And they were like, look, we, we have to move the body 
for something really quick. You could stay right next to her. Don't worry about it. We're going to just move the body. And then they move the body and all these like bugs and maggots and stench just goes all over the place. And he goes, oh my gosh, she's dead. And like finally realizes and snaps out of it and, and moves along. And there's a story of uh, grief making you stay by a corpse. So it made me think, I was like, ooh, is that uh, possibly a, a, a spin on that old Nordic story? I don't know. Um, so I I don't know. I, I, I don't know if we can trust what we've seen then at that point, right? Like, is she completely out of it where we're not actually seeing what she's really, what would, would really exist? Um, do you trust the narrator type of a, a situation, right? Um, and the other thing, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's, I feel like even the parts where she's getting off on the goat, right? Um, I feel like even with that, I don't know if I can even take that stuff very literally. Like maybe those were hallucinations of like things she had been contemplating or thinking she would like, you know, I, I don't know. It, it just feel like I don't trust her as a storyteller and it, it weirds me out in some ways because now I'm like, I don't know what I watched. Um, well, you I, wonder. I, I, I don't, I don't, what was, what, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of I don't knows. There's a lot of I wonder. There's a lot of I'm not sure. Um, but one, one of the things I was thinking of is we do get a glimpse of her perspective at the very end, I think, when she's on shrooms or coming off of shrooms, where, you know, the the events that precipitate her, or that precede, not precipitate, that precede her from leaving her um, her house and going and burning up on a, on a hill somewhere. You know, we see like a lot of green hue, and I think we see her tripping. And you got to wonder, is that like maybe her perspective all along in the movie? Maybe, I mean, it, she's coming off of a mushroom trip, but, you know, one one wonders if, because it's the only time in the movie I think we get her perspective in this, we're looking through her eyes, that maybe that's how she was looking at things all along, right? Maybe her baby really was dead. Maybe there's a skewed perspective and and uh, an unreliable narrator element to this movie, too. I, the, th the thing that bothers me about this movie is that it's not very obvious what it, what the answer is. And it's a very fine line. I, I feel like, and when I say that, I feel like I may contradict myself because there's other movies where I, it's an accolade. It's a good thing that the movie has that ambiguity, but this felt like just a hair too much of that ambiguity. And I can't really ever find the middle ground. And I like, I, I, someone, if they were smart enough, don't ever do this and you don't have enough time anyway, could find a clip of me contradicting myself heavily by saying this. But I mean, I don't know where that line is between ambiguity and, and, and being fed a narrative, a, a very clear story where there's an answer. That line to me is very, um, it's difficult to find my enjoyment of the film. I just know that this didn't have that. It was just slightly too much ambiguity, not super ambiguity. This isn't uh, mother. Mother may be an example of one that is like even scores more poetic, confusing, not not making sense as a movie um, in comparison. Um, well, maybe there's multiple lines on, on that um, because I also recently watched Tokyo Drifter. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Uh, it's a 1966 uh, Japanese uh, gangster movie, I guess you could call it uh, a gangster movie, but... Um, Tokyo Drifter, there's no storyline whatsoever that really can be followed. Everything, like every scene is just this random, what the hell is happening? Oh, crap. Uh, and there's always this drama that you're just like, where does this come from? And there's pretty like colored lights, 
you know, behind people. I don't, it, it's, it's so all over the place. But the thing is, is even though I had no idea what was happening, I was thoroughly entertained somehow. And Wait, I'm like, are, why? Are, are you sure we're not talking about Tokyo Drift? Because I feel like that describes Fast and no. Furious perfectly. <laughs> no, and I actually, okay. that was the funny thing when I was watch, watching Tokyo Drifter. Uh, Daniel was like, is that where Fast and the Furious came up with that? And I'm like, probably, probably. It's, um, it, it, it's like about a guy who's like a normal Joe and then he gets up in a, with a gang and, and, and that's all I can tell you. Like he starts getting involved with gang activity and there's lots of guns and this girl dies multiple times and somehow isn't dead and it's not explained and, and you're just so confused and they sing the same song like seven times and you're like, what does it mean? And what's funny is uh, Quentin Tarantino was inspired by this film and I was like, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me, honestly. But, um, it, where is that line and like different kinds of ambiguity? Because like th with that, it's it's nonsense, but it's funny and and weird and violent. And you're like, okay, that's fine. Uh, and another thing could be really weird, but you're like, oh, it came and kind of gave me the right vibe. Uh, I, I'm curious as to what vibe made you not as drawn to this one. And, and there might be multiple lines on how people might interpret those those kinds of storylines that are kind of all over the place. And I mean, I like some art house movies too, you know? I, there's some art house movies I really enjoy. There's some that I'm like, why was this made? Uh, so it is it about style? Is it about how the storyline is done? Or is it about putting in a mood with that structure that makes it- I think it... it's pace. I think it's so pace. I think it's mm. pace because because this movie is um, gorgeous. I mean, the Hagazus is gorgeous. Um, so that's there. Cinematically, I, I was entertained. I thought it was beautiful. Uh, actually, at, my wife, Danielle, was walking by as I was watching it. And she was like, wow, that's really pretty. What is that? And I'm like, give it five minutes. You're about to watch this chick eat her baby. And she was like, I'm out of here. Right. So, I mean, it's got that for it. It's got the cinematic stuff. Um, it, I think it was maybe just the pace. I, for me, I am realizing from our conversation really quickly, the pace may have been too much for me. I think just long drawn out sequences, um, usually in those sorts of movies, because I can think of movies where the pace is slow too. I'm just going to just contradict myself all night. All right. But, um, but I, I think the music carries it in those scenes. And in this movie, the music was like, eh, I, I, there's, I, I thought it was okay. I thought it was okay, but it just didn't carry those sequences of, of where, where there's no dialogue and, and there's this expanse and this reach of the, of the setting and the mountainside and all of that. Um, it's gorgeous, it's a gorgeous movie, but I, I was just like, for what? For what? I kept asking myself, like, what? For what? Why? This is so slow. Hurry, kill something, eat something. I, I was, I was bloodbath and beyonding it. I was like, I want action. I want some, some, some of it. My favorite part of the movie was the baby eating scene. I mean, granted, that's my favorite part of any movie I watch. If it has a baby eating scene, it's going to be my favorite. But that's how you, you know, know you're an atheist, right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. I, I, yeah, I was chomping away on a chicken bowl as I was watching it. I it just the chicken bowl tasted all the better. Here's the but, thing: you know, she didn't cook it properly, and and we could probably get into maybe we could do a yeah, cooking thing to teach her Jim. how to do it right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, for Jim. Jim needs to learn because uh, it was a little rough when she was eating. Now, Jim, did you notice when she ate the baby? It was very rough and almost leathery. And I think that's why she vomited. She couldn't handle the texture. Like it, it's, I've been saying this for years on this podcast. If you're gonna cook a baby, textures everything, textures everything. See the okay. witch, when so, they churn, 
when they turn back to <laughs> i'm gonna go back to some of the things shara said um, we're just gonna pretend a lot of that baby <laughs> how to cook a baby in the comments below don't put it in the a deadly analysis below. cookbook yeah <laughs> don't actually do this uh um, before, before you start can i at least ask do we do we understand why she ate the baby like are, are we on agreement why that happened she's uh, a dingo why don't you tell <laughs> they ate the baby well, so let me let me throw this out there. Maybe it's because at a certain point she had no more sources of food. There we go. So I think that's I think that's key. Okay. So as long as we understand that, that it isn't some like gratuitous scene of violence or whatever. Nope. I think a she probably killed the baby because she was tripping on shrooms and because she became an antinatalist. Obviously, like her life sucked and like she probably assumed the same shitty cyclical thing would happen to her kid. And two. She had no more food. Okay. So just, all right. <laughs> okay. Jim, please. Okay. All right. So it's, now that we're no longer talking about baby eating, um, let's, uh, I, 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 I want to go back to some of the things that we were talking about with pace and tone and some of the things Shara was trying to, was, was talking about when she was uh, drawing our attention to um, Tokyo Drifter, which, which is, you know, it's a, it, it's a movie. Um, it didn't altogether work for me, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to draw us to another sort of external example to try and draw a contrast. And both of them are Wong Kar Wai films. The first is In the Mood for Love. And the second is, uh, My Blueberry Nights. Um, now it's been a while since I've seen both of these films, so I might be off on my description of these, but In the Mood for Love is a really slowly paced story it is it does have a story much like Hagazusa does well no no, no. It, it does have a story where the plot events basically connect to each other Hagazusa has a story where plot events seem somewhat disjointed but there is some tenuous connections between the plot events um, there are moments like why is she eat, why is she going off mushroom eating like that's there's no real character motivation at least in my view that's just a thing that happens in the movie and then it it, it moves the next plot uh, plot event forward so instead of having these plot events being linked by a because or they're linked by an and then and so in really good storytelling you get because plot event A happens, plot event B happens. I know you want to say something, Ben. You're on my screen right now, and you're like chomping at the bit for this. But I'm, I'm going to try and finish this contrast. It's going to be a, it's a little long, but I'm going to try and finish it. So in in the mood for love has because this this happens. What happens in the middle between those plot events are very long sequences of. Uh, characters smoking, characters staring into the middle distance, um, trains going by, random shots of the city, montages and music and blah, 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 blah. It's a really slowly paced film. But overall, I could see the metaphorical, in my view, connection to the images to what was going on in the character's internal reality. And so when we talk about sort of the difference between literal interpretations and metaphor, and I uh, cited on the, the side of the metaphor, I was talking, I, I was specifically meaning that these images were metaphors 
for the internal emotional reality of the characters of the character during that time. Now let's contrast that with My Blue Berry Nights, another movie that nobody has seen, but also directed by Wong Kar Rai. There's this moment where it's it's a movie that stars Nora Jones and Natalie Portman, and the plot has put them in a place where they have to decide whether or not they're going to go to a place to get the objective that they've wanted throughout the entire film done. And so there's this long moment where they're like, hey, should we go to this place? And the long moment is just this long montage of shit that happens. And I remember in the theater, I turned to the, the, the lady that I was with and I said, I don't understand the fucking montage because it's clear that they should say yes. The plot is telling them this say It's obvious they're gonna say yes. Why is there a fucking montage here? And uh, that was, so that is my entire feeling during the vast majority of Hagazusa. I think Hagazusa is a, a short film. It's a 30 minute film in plot, but the interstitial spaces, the, 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 the connective tissue between the plot events is what makes the film so fucking long and, and slows the pace down in a way that didn't work for me because I was unable to see the metaphorical or literal relationships between the images I was seeing and the plot events that were, that were occurring in this movie. Go to town, Ben. All right, thank you. Thank you, sir. So <laughs> one thing I, I do want to point out is, though, I believe, um, I, I believe that this is Lucas Fiegelfeld's first feature-length film. Um, he won an award for it at some indie show. This was, this was an independent film, and he had done some short films before this. Um, but I do think it was his first venture into feature-length films. So perhaps that's where some of this feeling is coming from, where this is like a short film drawn out a little bit longer, perhaps a little bit new as a director. And then in, in this particular format, I'll give you that. But what I do wonder is if people tend to have problems tying plot points together when there's not much dialogue. And so I don't necessarily know if it's, it's really specifically the pace because this isn't a super long film. It's less than two hours, right? I, if I remember correctly, it's less than two hours. Um, there are a, there are four acts, like a set couple of things happen in each act to sort of drive the story forward. It's just that nobody really talks about things. And so I think that's quite challenging, but it's one of my favorite things that directors do if they're able to do it well to show plot development and character development without dialogue. In fact, like that was one of my high praises of Anna Lily, I'm your poor and a girl walks home alone at night is the fact that she's able to show incredible development between her dialogue scenes. Now, that being said, she also has incredible dialogue and really interesting dialogue that sort of drives the point forward, but it doesn't necessarily rely on that in every scene. Whereas Hagazusa almost entirely relies on that that elusive sort of perfection that requires that that allows you to move things forward without people talking to each other. And so like I really wonder if kind of like that's where the problem comes in because I do see in my mind, I've watched this three times now, but even the first time where I was sitting in a the theater, I had nothing else taking away my attention. I was just watching this movie. I felt like it carried forward just fine. Um, but then again, like that's that's probably one of the things that I like most about a movie is when it's able to do that without dialogue. So I just I want to throw that out there really quickly and see if you guys agree about the points and the, the importance of dialogue <clears throat> and allowing people to connect plot points together. 
Well, so the counter to that on this podcast is that we've done silent films with no dialogue that seem to have plots that are very clear. And I would think I, I would uh, jump in on that as well, Noah, that we've got silent films that have plots with clear dialogue. We also have, I, I think that it, very does amount to, uh, it does amount to a, a, an issue of um, a taste in some ways, Ben, because you, uh, like, you like a film like Hagazusa and I like a film like Bug, um, where it's, it's, it's a lot of dialogue. It's a lot of character interaction. It's a lot of, uh, yeah, like those, uh, that, it, the question is, is whether or not this ends up being a taste thing or whether or not it is a uh, function of good or bad filmmaking. And uh, I, I don't know. I do, have some, I do have some thoughts on that, but it looks like Noah was able to, his, his signal looks good again. I, I want to make sure that I'm able to hear what he says really quickly. Yeah, sorry about that. Really, my internet's kind of shit here. Uh, really quickly, so th yeah, the dialogue problem, I think part, like, I, I think there's merit to that. And I think I even said this at the beginning, I think that might be some of it for me, um, but I'm, I'm kind of countering myself when I say that. I, I'm trying to figure out why there's this contradiction for me. So I, th I think I think silent films are, are part of that contradiction. Um, I, I think some of them have clear plot lines. Granted, there's still dialogue, it's just text dialogue. So for me, I don't agree with Jim that it was so disjointed between scenes that that was the major problem. I actually see it as somewhat of the reverse, that I do agree there was a disjointed feeling between the four, I think it was four scenes, four scenes, four scenes. And then, um, like, that was definitely there. But the problem for me was pulling all the strands together of the film and, and saying, this is a movie about fill in the blank. So my other film that's like this, to give you an example, I don't know if you guys have seen it, is The Falling. I think it's like 2014. It's got Maisley Williams from... Game of Thrones. Uh, it's basically a movie about an all-female school where all of the women faint. They all just have fainting spells. And I think it just makes no sense. I literally, I was so frustrated watching it going, why is this happening? Like, I don't understand why everyone's fainting. What's the point? And then at the end, I think there's like the ultimate faint. One of them commits suicide off a tree. I like, it was very clear what was happening in the movie, scene to scene, lots of dialogue. For what? Like, I, I guess for what is what I was asking. Um, this movie, there was a for what, but I, I think I, like, I think I got it. I think I understood it to be, like I said in my intro, a movie about like believing something that is probably false so deeply that you make it, you, you instantiate. It, it's like the secret, but like the witch version. You know, like that's how I saw this movie. But it took, it took me. I guess what I'm saying is, it took me more work than it typically does for a film for me to get there. That may not be a criticism of the movie. It could just be that I'm just not there when I'm watching it, that it's, uh, you know, it's me. It could be a me thing and not a movie thing. But um, yeah, I, I don't want to put too much weight on the disjointed sort of vibe between uh, sections of the film. It's I, I agree with Jim that it's definitely there, but that wasn't the major problem because I've seen films like that all the time and I can still, I can still, I can, there's, I can, there's still meat on the bone. It's like overall, when I take a step back and look at this movie and I go, what is this about? Um, the lack of dialogue may have played a role in sort of the larger piecing of everything together into one cohesive whole. Um, but then I have to sort of wrestle with the idea that it's very easy for me to watch Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, to watch The Phantom Carriage, and to immediately go, man, this is very obvious what this is about politically, socially, um, there's layers of, of depth and thematic elements that we can draw from it. This movie, it was very hard for me to get anything out of overall. Um, that doesn't mean it's a bad movie necessarily. 
Um, you know, it, it could just be me. So that that's what I meant. So I just maybe we're just stupid. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I'm dancing around like a thank you. That's why I love Shayra. No, I, I can, I can give, this, this is why I love Shayra. I can I can dance around a point for five to ten minutes, and Shayra basically sums it up in a sentence. That's exactly right. Maybe I'm just a fucking idiot. Exactly right. Like that that could be the case. That could be the case. It likely but, is the case. But you're not, Noah. Like you're literally not. And so I mean, at, at, at a certain point, we can't, we have to stop blaming ourselves and start blaming the movie, right? Like, at a certain point, it's logical that it's no longer our fault. Uh, and and uh, We did get some of the metaphors, though. I think, that, right. you know, the idea of the goat head, we, we see the Satan references, the black goats, um, and, and then the the ceremonial washing in the bathtub is is kind of interesting because you know a lot of religions will wash themselves to get with their god and and she's kind of washing herself to you know get in good with satan i guess uh, I, I don't know there's probably some places to look into this but at the end of the day it's hard to combine all these things into a a complete explanation and if someone tried to tell me to write a report about this i would struggle exponentially this would probably be the hardest assignment someone could could give me and in fact i there was a moment when i considered not coming on the show today because i was like i'm gonna just go I like i don't yeah know i have very I few am. notes i'm right there with you shara this is the least amount of notes i have for a film ever i did the intro and i have about five bullet points and i was like well my work here is done. I can't think of anything else. So like for Midsummer, I had seven pages of notes. And I have had a page. Three hours to get through all of them. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't, yeah, and, and I didn't, and we didn't even finish. Didn't like, even I get didn't through get it through all. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, same. Uh, I, think, I think of all of us, Ben has the best, you have the most appreciation for this film, but I still, I've listened to, to everything you've said, but I'm still... What is this movie about? Why, okay. why okay. do I? Yeah, do I agree. I, That's a good question. Yeah, but I really want to know that too. Well, here, here's another piece of that too. So like, I yes, I, I appreciate the fuck out of this film. And like, I, I just want to talk about like one scene too really quickly before I go into like more about what this film is about. Um, because I think there are, there are many themes that you could probably draw from this and say, well, it's about this, it's about this, it's about this, et cetera, et cetera, on and on and on. Um, but first, let me just let me let me point out that this is really interesting to me that on Rotten Tomatoes, and obviously this isn't the arbiter of truth by any means, for many reasons. Um, but I think this is probably the most polarizing movie that I've ever ever seen on here in, in of reviews. But this is ninety five percent for critics and forty six percent for the audience. So that's nearly a fifty percentage point gap. I can't think of another film that's ever produced that much polarization between critics and the audience. And I guess it kind of makes sense, but like, as far as like my appreciation of this, let me, I, I just, there's, there's one scene that I think is the absolute best of this entire film and it's not even the baby eating. Um, although that's, that's up there too. Although she, she should have at least used some paprika. Yes. But like that scene where she was like with the goat, right. And like, this is super fucked up. I know in, in a normal movie, where you have two characters and they have like quippy dialogue and they're in a restaurant and they fall in love and it's because they said the right things to each other and and then they have a sex scene and that's supposed to be super sensual and like a, an explosion of like emotions and you're like supposed to you know feel what you're supposed to feel there's that but this woman in this movie is totally alone the soundtrack 
completely changes whenever the scene starts. You get close-ups, things slow down. It almost takes on an ASMR vibe. She's touching herself, so female masturbation. Points for showing that in a movie. I, for fuck's sake, like this is probably the most sensual scene that I've seen in any movie that I've ever seen, perhaps. And I, I know, I know, Jim, thank you for that look. Yes, that's exactly what I expected as far as a reaction is concerned. But goddamn, like, can you, can you not, like, does your skin not tingle whenever you watch that? Like, in, in a little bit, a little bit? Am I the only person that really gets the ASMR thing? We're talking about, can you, we're talking about the scene where she's jerking off to the goat head or the scene where she's, she's masturbating. She's sitting, she's sitting there on the stool. Yeah, she's sitting yep. there on the stool. She's milking the goat. And then the she's, goat milk is running down her hand. Over her fingers. She touches her mouth and her face. How the acting that must have gone into that, like the cinematography, the editing, the sound, everything that plays into that scene. It's like, if I were to choose like what on YouTube, there is this thing where people make videos about one perfect scene. If I were to make a video about that, this would be that scene. I swear to God. Like it's so reality best scene ever. <laughs> no, I'm not going to get it. No, that's it. what makes it fucked up because like, yes, it, it, and that's what makes her like seem like a heathen to the Christians. But it i i don't know like i, that's I guess very I interesting really that's it, very that's very interesting that you, is... that you find that you find so much power that you find so much beauty not power they find so much beauty in that scene it's beautiful it's, yes it's yeah. absolutely gorgeous yeah and I, it's not because of the goat mm -hmm. it's because she's there and mm -hmm. i think they perfectly capture like what she's feeling i i think they perfectly capture what she's feeling and so i can feel in my skin mm -hmm. like what she is feeling in hers like i really think that's what's going so, on there so so that is that is how I feel when I watch the mirror scene in Raw. The way you're describing this scene with the goat is how I felt like about, like I, I just felt um, consumed by the scene as being something very uh, tingly. I don't know if tingly is the right word considering the scene in Raw, uh, but to, yeah, just being a male, I don't know, being a, being a heterosexual. But uh, no, I, you know, I saw the goat scene and I saw that scene as beautiful in the sense that it was the um god how do i want to describe this i saw that as being that close with nature and that far away from people it it, it was i mean and when we think of a witch that's what we think of about how witches were viewed and it's in that's in the witch being out there in nature separated from society the world right think of the bible of the world of the world uh satan is the the uh what is it? The the prince of the the prince of the air, right? The it, basically like nature, nature bad, which is out there in nature, right? Um, communal, close people, Christian, religious community, right? When I see that scene, I see it as finding the beauty in the in the reverse of sort of these Christian communal notions, and I think that that scene captured it. I I think. Uh, and there is some ASR elements in the sense that I think there's a lot of breathing in that scene. If I rem remember correctly, you're hearing um, breathing. I think of the scene from Midsummer, and this is uh, a, a, maybe half a second of it when Danny trips out on mushrooms and she looks up at the at the trees moving, and you can hear Danny breathing. Like magnify that times twenty, and that's that scene in uh, Hagazusa. So I, I get it. I, I get uh, sort of the power of that scene. I contextualize it to be something like being that in tune with nature and that out of tune with, with society and with people, right? Being a heathen, being a heathen. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So it sounds like you get it. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> At least yeah. I'm not the only one. Yeah. Now that I think what you've did, you got something, Jim. Okay. 
Go ahead. No, keep keep going. I, I was going to comment on what I got out of that scene, but I'm more interested in your overall take on the film. So, Okay, great. Sure. So I, I think the way, Noah, that you've just described that as being like this perfect summation of being out there in nature and essentially this attunement that is like sort of the opposite of what you would consider kind of like the Christian worldview and like their values. Great. Perfect. Because really, whenever I look at the largest theme in this film, it probably relates back to that exact same thing. So there's no real magic to speak of, right? Like, that's the best part about this. My biggest criticism of The Witch, which I think was my film for this, I gave it a 4.5 because I love that movie. The Witch is fantastic. My biggest criticism is that they actually had real witches that levitated and did like weird magical shit. And like, maybe it was metaphorical. Maybe it wasn't, I don't know. I think it was supposed to be interpreted as literal, but I didn't like that. They introduced this supernatural element when like 95% of the movie are like this weird stuff is happening. Like this person is being ostracized. There's this force. You're not necessarily sure. Yes. This woman shows up in this barn to steal stuff from you. She's scary. She's naked, but you don't see any magic. And the end, like they totally ruin it for me. They absolutely ruin not they don't ruin the movie. Like I, I really think they botched the ending in the witch when they whenever they decided to rely on some some creepy magic and some levitation. You don't get that in this film. And I think the reason is because it's supposed to take a literal, realistic interpretation of what it was actually like to be ostracized as a witch in the middle in the in the medieval, like whatever, like the 15th century, right? I'm a lot of the things that were normal for her looked really, really creepy and scary to the people who would see her. It's weird that she's out by herself. And like, that's why the little kids threw things at her and ostracized her. Those little kids probably will grow up into adults. And like, if her daughter had become an adult, they would have done the same thing to her. Like it would have been another cyclical thing where it's weird for this person to be out by themselves alone. So they're going to treat her like shit just because she's alone. She has a goat skull up which makes sense for her because like goats are literally her source of life and kind of like a symbol of death because if she were to lose the goats, that's the end of her way of living, right? makes perfect sense. For them, they kept all of their dead, all of their skeletons sort of piled up together in this church, headed up by this priest. She wanted to take the skull of her mother, painted it with roses and kept it in a little shrine in her home by herself alone in a way that she found to be sacred and beautiful whenever her her the person swinda swin swindler uh, what the fuck was her name whatever Sw swinda yeah swinda she comes into this house and i think i think that's what she was reacting to so when she was looking around and she had that concerned weird look on her face i think it's because she saw that skull and because the way she was treating death probably seemed really foreign and really bizarre to her as a christian who kept dead the dead people like in a in a in the catacombs like a temple in a church kept by the priests like that was normal for her this was abnormal like all of these weird random things seemed creepy and ostracizable to them in that society and that's sort of like what becomes the myth of the witch so it's like all of these little things sort of get rolled up into this big creepy story this legend of what we think about now as witches so like obviously the base of our culture the puritans the the pilgrims or whatever coming coming over as christians and christians and burning witches taking all of these things that they could use to ostracize these people and turning them into these weird stories where witches would enchant you they fly on brooms they do this they do that they sleep with satan or whatever i mean like all this shit comes from like these 
weird, these little, these little things that they would see that these people do normal stuff. Obviously, if you're secular, you see these as being non-magical inherently. So I think that's really what they were trying to do to show like the very secular non-magical version of all of these legends and all these superstitions portrayed for you and how a person who gets caught up in that ends up being ostracized and demonized to the point where they go mad right and become the thing they become the monster that everyone was forcing them to be and seeing them as from the start i think that's really what this is about well someone agrees with you because in the comments we have uh, you know a movie is powerful when it makes you identify with a bestiality goat nutrient liquid sensuality scene amen amen also someone had said uh, really quickly how about a quick review of two girls in one cup with jim just, just fyi throw that out there I, uh, I wasn't watching the chat, no. so I didn't see that. No, 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 no. Who are you and no, and who are you and why do you hate me? No. <laughs> well, what do you, what do you think of, what do you think of Ben's way he sees this movie? I, I largely agree with it. Um, but I think Ben's scope is way more clear than mine is when he watches this movie. I think that he gets out of it things that were a lot harder. Like I'm sitting there, if we have a scope, we're gonna use the scope metaphor for some reason. I'm messing with the dial. I'm like, damn, the wind is like this and I gotta move And Ben's sitting there going, oh, bam, look at that. Bam, that's one theme. Bam, here's another one. Like Ben's getting it quicker than me. I, I think that I largely agree with those things. I just, it, it took me a little longer to get to those. Uh... Get to those themes, I yeah. Um... I just want to say really quick, uh, Ben, everything. Oh, is he not? Even, oh, okay. He is there. Um, I, I do want to let you continue. Know if you are, uh, you, you're moving again. Yeah, I'm done. Sorry. My internet's crap. I apologize. Go, go for it. Okay. Um, so Ben, uh, I've been watching a bunch of these older movies and one of the horror films that was in the very, very beginning silent film uh, was Huxon. Have you seen Huxon? Okay, I, I'm i going to recommend that film. Please try to find it. I believe it is available on YouTube. Uh, please try to find it this week. I think you will really appreciate it. It is essentially this movie, except done in like the 20s or 30s. I think it was the 20s. It's a Swedish film. Um, and you can actually see the guy who directed it. He plays the devil in it. Um, Huxon is really hard to explain. It's part documentary, and also part weird, what the fuck, what is the, there's not really a storyline here, blah, 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 but it's all about witches and witchcraft. And so it tells this like documentary style story of how witches were hurt and harmed in the past and then puts together these really weird like mini movies about what witchcraft is perceived as in uh, most religious people's eyes. And so you see like old hags in a hut you know, turning some, making some potions or something. And then Satan pops up and he's like, Hey, let's dance naked, whatever. And it's like, it's, it's, um, it's really weird and really awesome. And I, I absolutely loved it. It, it was, it was a fantastic watch. It, if I wanted to try to tell you the storyline though, I could not tell you the storyline. Um, but it was kind of weird like this one. Um, it wasn't as slow paced though, because it was, interlaced with actual information about history i think it drew me in a little bit better than this one maybe um because it, it kind of had a point it was like hey 
here's when Christians did some horrible things. And here's a fun little video. And you're like, okay, <laughs> I'm learning something maybe. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's hard for me because, you know, it's almost the same title too, right? So I kind of equate it, but that isn't even necessarily an insult, right? Because that's a really great treasured now silent film from the past. So um, I'm wondering if this guy went to film school and got inspired and, you know, was like, I can, I can do it in a modern, you know, age. Um, it's entirely possible. Um, so, I, you know, I think you should try that out and, and get some weird vibes from that too. And as far as the ASMR stuff, I actually do have uh, that tingle that happens in, in me when I watch certain ASMR videos. Uh, before ASMR became this huge thing on the internet, I would actually watch certain things to get those tingles. Um, so I, it's not even just like a, a fad for me. I've always had that ever since I was younger. I didn't know what it was. And, and then there became a term for it. And I was like, whoa, okay, cool. I have a thing. Um, and maybe because I do go to sleep watching ASMR videos for that reason. So I can just go to sleep and just sleep. Maybe that's why I fell asleep so much during this movie. Maybe the ASMR vibes like lulled me to a point where I can't even sit through it. I don't know. It's possible it was that maybe, you know how we talked about, um, what was that movie we talked about that we said we go to sleep to now? Pontypool. Pontypool, yeah. Yeah, maybe this is this is another Pontypool for me. <laughs> you go to sleep to baby eating. That's right. Yellow is Coca-Cola. Paper cups are bark. <laughs> Sunlight is uh, lamp. I, I don't know. Fuck. I, I can even do that. Food is baby toe. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that definitely makes sense, I guess. And like another thing too, like especially like if that, that sort of stuff lulls you into relaxation, like I think probably the soundtrack in general is probably really good at that too, because like the, the scenes that we have where the, the sound is, is most prevalent, I think is, it's kind of like this tonal, very like low sort of, I think it's supposed to incite dread, right? Like that's that's the way I interpreted the soundtrack here is whenever um, like there would be an important point in the, what I saw as the plot at least, we would have this kind of like repetitive sort of droning low sound. Um, I'm not sure what that frequency would be, but I imagine if if that's not, inciting like dread for you like if that's not pulling out that that sort of inner uh you know that 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 feeling that i think we relate to a lot of different horror films and they, they evoke that in many different ways but if that's not evoking that for you i could see that also as being very sort of hypnotic um and sort of like relaxing i you know, i don't know like i i personally i thought the sound was like fantastic in terms of like being able to evoke dread but you know maybe that's another thing that would probably just put a lot of people to sleep i don't know well my in my sound because i have you know a lot of bass and a lot of surround sound in in my viewing area it just sounded like an earthquake was about to hit <laughs> i mean it was like and i'm like oh it's the movie okay and i didn't even notice it was in the film i was just like whoa it's vibrating. It was a vibrating movie. I don't know. So, so like a good example of that for me is The Devil's Candy. Did you guys ever see The Devil's Candy? Like that has the music where it's like I think it's even like a, a like a like a Pantera, like very deep, like a band that actually did the like the very like deep, scary sort of thing. That was like that's what I think of when Ben says that. Um, but yeah, the I never would have considered like the ASMR vibe being a, a thing in this. Um, but I think to the extent that there is, I think it goes back to that idea of getting you into a very raw, natural, tingly state. 
it's nature. It's the core of nature. It's going back to like almost origins. It's like, I have the same feeling when I like, I can't stand, stand EDM music, but there's a sense in which some of it, if you really try to understand it, is very tribal and old. And um, that's the part of, I think that music, if there is any part of that fucking music that I like, I think that's, that's it. But um, yeah, anyway, I think that goes back to that though. This movie largely is a movie about, about being enveloped and overwhelmed in, uh, in nature because of, of being ostracized by the community. Um, and I think we've done other films that are like that. Um, and I think this is, uh, this is another one. I, I think for me though, it's a combination of the pace and the lack of dialogue. Um, and I got to do some work and to figure out why for me that that's a problem in this movie, but it's not a problem in other movies. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I, I'm not sure I have an answer for why that's the case. Um, but yeah, I've had two viewings and I was like, fuck, this is hard. It's a hard movie. I feel like this is, this is like a uh, AP horror. Like when you take an AP history class, this, this movie's an AP horror movie. It is hundred percent. So, um, let, let's say that everything you're saying, Ben, is is correct. That this is a movie about somebody who's been ostracized, and uh, that it is about how we internalize the rejections that society throws at us. Um, okay, I can uh, I can see elements of this film that support that thesis. Um, I can see elements of this film that are um, even effective at supporting this thesis. But I let's, I, when I was listening to Noah speak, I was thinking to myself, okay, so this is a good theme, but what about the film's effectiveness at delivering that theme? Like that's one of the central, it, it I can have a movie about the greatest philosophical precept of all time, but if I don't effectively deliver that uh, that precept, then it's then it's not going to it's not going to it's going to fall on deaf ear, deaf ears. Um, and I think when we talk about the pacing of the movie and the film's connective tissue, all of that, when I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you the same question, but I'm going to uh, require a sort of ask for a, a different answer from you. What is this movie about? Not in terms of theme, but in terms of plot, in terms of what actually happens in the movie. Um, and then let's try to relate the the events that you tell me what this movie, when you answer that question, let's try and relate those events specifically to the themes that you're talking about. And I think when we get into the weeds of the, the sort of distance between the plot events and the themes that you're talking about, we'll, we'll start to understand why I, at least as a viewer, had some, some difficulty enjoying this movie and appreciating it the same way you did. Does that make sense? Do, does my question make sense? And do you understand where the objective of my question and why, why I'm asking it? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not 100% sure that I'm really great at sort of like distilling plot narratives into like a single like sentence. Um, and first of all, there's there's also my thesis that every horror film is about death and the fear of death. So I think this would probably tie back into that and like the the death of one's sort of like social life and connections and how that leads one on a path to self-destruction 
but I also see this like in a, in a more stereotypical kind of like translation of the plot. I think this is the story of Albrun's path to destruction. I so, story of Albrun's path to destruction. Sure. How so, she evolves over time. What happens? What happens to where does she start? She starts at a place of not destruction. She starts at a place of what is the disadvantage? I would say. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in on. on yeah, this. she starts. No, I mean it's a four-person podcast. God bless. He, um, yeah, she I, at a place of disadvantage. <laughs> but I would argue she starts at a place of social destruction. So if you're going to argue, if you're going to, if your point is going to be, this is the story of Auburn's. Uh, path to Auburn's destruction, um, specifically, I would think, as it relates to the themes that you're talking about, a social destruction, she starts at the end point. Like, she starts at a place where there is no there is no social involvement. No? Let's, let's take this. Let's I, take I don't think so, but more. go ahead. Go ahead, Ben. I don't think that's true, but go ahead, Ben. Yeah, I think it's it's I think it's necessary to to start in a point where we see her as a little girl because that gives us like sort of like the context within which she develops, and that's absolutely necessary to show why she's by herself, to show why she's ostracized by society, to show kind of like the sins of her mother, kind of like carrying on to her and giving her that starting point, right? Like that's that's necessary to show that as the foundation of her character. That's psychologically where we see her beginning at is coming up in this place where she's forced to be alone and where she carries the burden of her mother's death and like everything that that sort of like brought on to her as a person who eventually becomes an adult who lives by herself as like this goat herd with a daughter like all that is necessary to show that foundation what really happens in the story here is how she is given hope and then that hope is taken away and how then that leads her to take essentially drastic measures to complete her arc into kind of like madness, which was probably propelled by her loneliness and fucking take all the villagers with her essentially. I mean, I think that's kind of like the arc we see is like her starting point is in a place that's already dark and already bad. Again, this is a horror film. This is about how women were ostracized in the middle ages by Christians as witches. Like that's, that's really our foundation there. And that's not necessarily a high point. That's not even necessarily a middle point for like most people. It starts out low, but she is given hope, which I think sort of like where, where we see that arc start to come up. Like she gets a friend. She thinks that friend comes over. She wants to like defend her from the kids. She wants to visit with her. She gives her an apple. She wants to hang out with her. Like things are great. She starts to see some hope. She's a little bit happier. And then that hope is absolutely destroyed when her friend leads her into a situation where she is raped by that woman's husband and where we see that that woman was sort of like fucking with her the entire time when she says, you know, I hate all of you or whatever it is. Like all of you smell like rotting, whatever, whatever characterizing her as a heathen. She's basically like essentially revealing that she was sort of taking advantage of her and manipulating her the entire time. So like, all that friendship was a lie. And so then we hit this low point. She goes back home to try and recover from this because maybe that's par for the course. Maybe she accepts these villagers or expects these villagers to treat her like that. She expects to be alone. Maybe she even expects to be raped because that's presumably where her daughter came from. But then she finds out also that her entire way of life, her livelihood has been destroyed when she goes into the bar and then sees her goats have all been slaughtered. So that drops her even lower than standard. She has now gone from a high point to a super low point where she has no hope for life. She is probably going to die. Her child is going to die. 
And in that desperation and her starvation, she goes out into the woods. She tries to eat a mushroom. She trips the fuck out. She kills her kid. And then she eats her baby. Like, obviously, like all of this happens in the midpoint, um, in the midst of all of this pain, she does this thing to like hurt the villagers. All of them die. And she eventually ends up presumably killing herself. So it's really like, that's where I see like this path to destruction happening, right? So she starts at a point, she goes up, she drops way down, and she takes herself out and like all the villagers with her. <laughs> like, that's pretty much I, like the basic narrative. I think that's, I, I think what you, you did. Honestly, I think you did a better job than the movie of telling this story. Like, I actually, this is, uh, it's almost, I, I'm going to use the asshole line that I always use with Garrett, and I know it's an asshole line. I would have liked to see a movie that you just told me, because uh, that's a great movie that you just narrated. I love the movie you talked about. Unfortunately, I don't feel I saw it today. Um, but I, it's funny because I can I, I I can see the aspects that you're bringing out of this film in the film that I did witness today. It's just that I think the pace was so slow and I'm gonna go back to the connective tissue argument. So, and, and I'm gonna do this, you know, in kind of another sort of asshole questioning way. Um, that's a great story you just told me, Ben. How the fuck does the snake fit into it? when the snake is crawling on our neck. The snake is important because obviously we see that as a symbol oh, of an answer for it. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> like the snake is important because it's have an answer for it. This is great. All right, go ahead. Well, it's it's a biblical symbol, obviously. Like if we go back to the the beginning, like the creation, whatever, whatever, we see Satan as the serpent. And so where where we don't see any like real evocation of Satan or witchcraft in this movie, we do see that that superstition represented somewhere. So like there's a snake in a couple different points, and I think that was introduced because superstition is really the key to this in fact if you look at the one interview that i was able to see with the director like that's kind of like what he was going back to like over and over and over again because like a lot of these superstitions still exist in those rural regions of austria and like europe like they still kind of like believe in like and, and remember a lot of this weird like pagan stuff right like they carry that with them you know as any as any rural region does right like they they tend to be more conservative they remember the past that's what they do they just they remember for a longer period of time and they carry that with them like that's that's kind of like characteristic of all of those rural cultures but i think it's there primarily just to evoke that symbolism just like the goat skull just like the skull that's painted it's there is just like an evocative symbol that's so that's what we're that that's uh, uh sort of the a foundational point in my objection to this film is that you taught i asked you about a plot element why is a snake crawling crawling around a neck and you brought out a thematic metaphorical element Okay, so that's the the snake has nothing to do with the plot, and we spend like a couple minutes on the plot. Like the snake doesn't affect her her journey. The the snake doesn't give her the idea to put a rat in the in the drinking source. The snake is simply a metaphorical uh, or thematic touch that the director had had used in order to bring up these biblical allegories. Now, of course, I understand what. I understand that Satan was represented by the serpent and all that. Like I get all of those metaphors, but what 
I don't get is how it relates to the specific story that you told two minutes ago. But but well, I why think why think that need be a requisite? Why, right, exactly. Why I, think? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I I I really want to drive that point home. It's like I don't, I don't necessarily know if like every single thematic element needs to directly drive the plot. Like, and I think again, like back to our discussion about a girl walks home alone at night, like we have this whole scene of this, this trans person dancing around with a fucking balloon. And like, it's the most brilliant thing in the movie. And yet it has nothing to do with the plot. It's literally just a person dancing with the balloon, but thematically it's genius. Um, I think some things and like, you know, of course I can make the argument while well, they're in the middle of the Alps and like, obviously there's going to be snakes out there in the woods and like, you know, maybe a snake got into her house or whatever. But I think really the importance there is just the thematic and like most of what we see here, I think in the movie does directly tie back into the story. But yeah, I mean like that, I think that particular touch, that timing, why did the snake appear at that particular point in the story? That's, that's probably thematic and I don't really see that as a criticism. Well, that takes us back to the Noah's first question is, do you see this film more literal or more metaphorical? I answered metaphorical, you know, in part because the snake has nothing to do with the plot, nothing to do with the literal story. Um, and and just because there are, there happen to be snakes in the Alps doesn't mean that you have to have a scene where the snake, uh, snake crawls on the, the woman's neck. I mean, there happens to be a lot of things that happen in literal life that we don't make movies out of. I'm sure in Jaws, they went to the bathroom a few times. We didn't have to see those scenes um, because they weren't- Can I attempt to art. interpret this? And sure. you guys agree with it or not? Uh, I'm gonna attempt to interpret this art. Uh, so the snake is is a uh, representative of a temptation, uh, a temptation to sin against God. And um, so you already have these villagers that are trying to tell them that they are an abomination and that they are sinning against God by being witches uh, and, and whatever else things they think they are, dirty, gross, rotten, whatever. Um now there's other scenes that intertie with this and 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 here maybe this will be those little threads you're looking for to sew this weird quilt together right um so we have the snakes that are are enticing and luring and and getting you into the sin then you see later on in the film you see um what is her name sid sidwar i can't remember what her name is but um she comes to her home and gives her a red apple uh, sending her into another place where it's going to end up, she's going to go down a really bad path. She's like, here, try some sin. And, and she's almost like an embodiment of a snake. Even if you look at how she behaves and acts and talks, it's very snake-like. She's she's a snake. It's, a, it's almost like a, a prophecy of what's going to come. And then later on, uh, uh, we have our character kill and eat her baby. Now, one of the things that seems to be prevalent is she has been ostracized from this village for the sins of her mother. And then she is now passing this on to a daughter. Maybe she killed and ate her baby to wash herself of these sins. And she literally washes herself of these sins uh, to get the sin out of her, to make it go away. And then to make sure to cleanse the world of the rest of the sin that she has seen and, and kind of uh, cleanse, cleanse everything. That is an interpretation I'm willing to take in. I don't know if it, it works, but just you guys talking made me think of it. So It's an interpretation, and it makes a lot of sense from a thematic point of view. 
But what it doesn't answer is the diegetic questions that I was trying to drill down uh, when I was talking about the plot elements. It still doesn't answer why the why we have a scene with a snake. Um, it makes a lot of sense thematically. Like your your interpretation sort of runs uh, parallel with Ben's. Your answer to that question runs parallel with Ben's. Both of them make sense thematically, but in order for Ben's interpretation of this film to, to hold a lot of water, we also have to uh, associate uh, the protagonist of the story, Alburn, Alburn with, um, with secular non-Christian morals, secular non-Christian um, uh, a secular non-Christian paradigm, and yet the snake and the apple are deliberately um, Christian ideologies that are coming from two different sources. One's from nature, the snake, and the other is from this temptress who ends up getting her raped. Um, I can get the idea that the temptress giving her an apple and then later getting her raped uh, leads to a thematic interpretation that actually Christian and societal mores lead you to uh, painful or problematic uh, outcomes. I can I can get on board with that as a thing that this film is saying, but the snake crawling on her neck in this particular scene. And I'm sorry, I'm harping on this, but this is, for me, it's emblematic of the connective tissue of this film, making little little sense as it relates. You think it seems like a, a, a younger like student made it and was trying to be provocative and just uh, be interesting and, and use biblical imagery to evoke an emotion. And it's really, it's the kind of movie that might end in Finn because they're trying to be cool. You know? <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the film lacks some cohesion and I think that the connective tissue of the film is uh, not as compelling as some of the things that Ben has been able to suss out of the film. My original rating of this film is gonna be much, was much lower than what it is now after hearing Ben talk about it. So you've you've raised me, you've raised <laughs> me half a star, Ben. Congratulations, good job. But, I will say, I will say too, though. Like, I mean, it's it's not necessarily. I won't say like the snake is there because this or a snake was present. Therefore, you know, I'm not going to try to make that kind of like a direct connection in the story. But I do, I do think that it's it's sort of important again thematically, not just from a Christian perspective, but because like if you remember, whenever we see the mothers. Well, whenever see whenever we see Alburn's mother die, like that's another time when we see the snake, and so like she's dead there in the swamp. The snake is sort of like crawling across her body, and there I think we're supposed to tie together the symbolism that her mother and the snake are represented somehow. Like visually speaking, the snake has come from her mother's dead corpse, and so like I think what we can interpret that as, especially like later on when we see this sort of like crawling around her neck is the voice of her mother whispering to her. Like we've been hearing auditorily in a lot of different places in the film where we kind of like, where we hear her saying Albrun, Albrun like calling to her, which again ties together also with her friends sort of like calling to her Albrun, which she confuses with that voice that she hears in her head. You know, I mean, like I do think there are some tying together of these elements. So it's not just like the snake randomly shows up later in the movie. It was there also in the beginning and is supposed to be associated with her mother. 
Plus, I think Ben hit it. If you go and run out over there in the middle of the night, there's snakes. There you go. Snakes exist over there. You yeah. ran out in the middle of the night. That's what you get. <laughs> Jump and, into a swamp, snakes. And the guys in Jaws had to go to the bathroom. That doesn't mean we need to see them <laughs> see that happening. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, that's I, I like your... But then, all right, I, I feel like I'm just going to harp on a fucking snake for most of this podcast, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> Jim like, does not like snakes. There's two things he doesn't like, snakes and vomiting hair. Those are the two things. No, I, I don't have a problem with snakes. I'm not Indiana Jones or anything. But uh, I think Ben was afraid that we would spend uh, uh, three hours talking about the uh, the baby eating scene. But instead, we spent three hours talking about the damn snake crawling across the... It was just... I was trying to make a point about the diegetic reality of this film making little sense as you piece together the plot as, as Ben has ably done. No, that's that's fine. As long as we don't sort of like uh, speculate that the snake has orchestrated the death of her mother. Like, I think as long as we don't go there, then we're going to be OK. Like, it's going to be totally fine. We can talk about Eureka! <laughs> five out of five stars. So what's interesting, I feel like, is that is that Jim and I um, ultimately have the same criticism, but we see it differently. Right. Like, I, I think that there's schisms in between oh, sections of ends again, Noah. Oh, no. All right. I'm going to let you talk. I'm just going to no, no, no. I want you to just start the sentence again. You're doing. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was, uh, sorry. I was eating a child. Um, no, <laughs> I, I, I think that uh, I think that we uh, Jim and I seem to agree that there is kind of a schism in this movie. There's something that doesn't fit. That, and I, th I think Jim is explaining <clears throat> a one of those particular things. Uh, I feel like my thing is freezing. Hey, let me, I'm going to hop back in and out real quick. Is Am I good now? If I freeze again, I'll just hop back yeah, out. You're perfectly and fine. You're perfectly okay. fine. Okay. Uh, Jim was explaining one of those particular things. Yeah. Like I feel like you and I, Jim, we agree with the, with the criticism of this movie that there's a, a kind of schism, a kind of problem between sections that getting from point A to point B to point C is, is not very clear, but I think we disagree on the reasons for that, that, that lack of clarity. Whereas yours would be the, the diegetical sort of this scene to the next scene to the next scene and sort of the math not adding up in that sort of way. I felt that way with the theme being like I, the scenes, okay, there's this scene and this scene and those scenes are clear, but when I add them up, so mine is like a summation problem. Mine is adding them up. Yours is the addition itself seems to be the issue. Whereas mine is the summation, but both of us agree that there is the same problem with the movie. I wish I could see this movie like Ben, like just being very clearly, this is how I saw It Follows and I have the same frustration with people that go, oh God, I think this is about AIDS and sexually transmitted diseases. And I didn't understand why there was a pool with a slit in it that looks like a vagina, like a V, what could that be about? You know, like I, so, I get the clarity in his perspective of this movie. I think it was just the amount of work that got him there was very easy. And the amount that got me there was very difficult. I feel it's the same thing for you, but yours is a piece by piece criticism, whereas mine is sort of a summation, uh, pulling together the strands, whereas yours is the strands itself, which I think is interesting. That's fair. very, uh, very opposite of like what I thought all of us would think of this movie. Actually, I'm kind of with Ben, like I very, it's I, well, I knew Ben would like this movie, but yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's got snakes and 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 goat stuff, and, and I'm baby eating. My God, it's like it's on Ben's. Let's that's on Ben's Facebook profile is his interest. Ben loves it. Ben it, loves it. Woman, when a woman masturbates to a goat. 
<laughs> for fuck's sake yeah that scene alone i feel like if we were to compare that scene to the seventh seal i would be a hard time choosing between the two like it would just be those two things you know um what no, if no, like <laughs> what if a girl is milking a goat and masturbating while playing chess with death would that would that help you ben would I mean, just I, explode at that yeah point. i would probably just die like that would literally like fulfill my meaning in life and like that would be it i would have no more reason to go on therefore my body would just shut down and that would be it like it'd be the end of my story It'd be I, like in Justine doing her little mirror scene in Raw and then looking at me and saying, God is dead. I'd just be like, I'm good. I'm good. Can die happy. So I, I do want to say it's it's really interesting. <laughs> it's really interesting that that this is the criticism, though, because I feel like I've had this with a couple of movies that were otherwise like absolutely fantastic. You know what I mean? Because like with um with us and with midsummer i felt like there were cohesion issues because like we had these scenes that i felt like were important to the development of certain characters they were really really good but they didn't necessarily lead to anything like major in the plot like for instance uh midsummer let's talk about that a little bit more right so like at the beginning of the movie we had this incredibly evocative like intro this like prologue where we see um where we see danny's family die right and so like that's this incredibly important scene it sort of like sets up why she's emotionally distraught that's great it's it's fantastic for her character development but that's about it like i mean it doesn't really tie much with i think other like happenings in the plot like i mean it could have been any tragedy i feel like that could have led to that point it doesn't come up later i mean she has some flashbacks which i kind of feel like you know yeah they're there but eh, it's not necessary like it, it's not like a therefore moment any tragedy where she would have been upset could have led to the disjointed sort of like relationship that she has with Christian could have led to the reasons why all of his friends are kind of uneasy with her, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. With us, it's sort of like the same thing where we have a lot of interesting stuff going on in the movie. You know, I mean, like maybe, maybe this whole narrative and us where, you know, we have this girl that sort of gets switched out with her doppelganger at the beginning and like at the end of the movie, like you kind of have this weird reveal. Like that's that's interesting. I don't feel like you really earned it, you know, but in this movie I feel like it 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 flows together fine. Like I didn't have any of those issues with this movie. Like I felt like every single scene, while there were like incredible like thematic elements and like maybe every single theme, like obviously we don't necessarily need this majestic panorama of the the Austrian Alps. We don't need a random ASMR scene where she masturbates uh, while she's milking a goat. But like I feel like there's character development, there's scene development, there's like aesthetic quality to that. Um and I think it's really there just as like adornment to the four acts which i feel like flow together just fine um so yeah it's quite interesting that um in this movie in particular we sort of have seemed to switch places a little bit the tables have turned just a bit if you will well yeah. I, I it's rather on brand for me to want narrative structure in a film and it's rather on brand of me to want character uh interaction in a film so it's not a, it's not terribly off-brand that this film is doesn't necessarily work for me. But uh, that said, I, and, and as I was watching it, I was like, oh, more weird shit from Ben. Um, no, I, I kind of I figured that this would be uh, this would be right up your alley. But uh, yeah, hey, we should score this movie. Let's um, do it. Yeah, do you want to put Ben and I back to back, and then yeah, that? let's do that. Let's do that. Let's 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 go. Me and Shara, and then let you guys battle it out. <laughs> 
Shara, you want to go? I, 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 yeah. I, well, let me let me defer to Shara. I want to know Shara's final thoughts. What do you think, Shara? Yeah, so this was some weird ass shit. Uh, it took me a while to even sit through it, and even then, I was still like a zombie through it because it hypnotized me. And so I don't know what. Don't take anything I say uh, seriously because I don't even know if I was myself during this film. I might have left my body and someone else took over and then I came back and whatever thoughts were left over is what I what I take from the film. I, I think I was uh I think that a witch came in and possibly gave me some kind of brew or something. I don't know. Maybe I took some mushrooms before I watched it. I have no idea what happened. Um but I will say this uh it's beautiful to look at. Very beautiful to look at and very much something that will haunt you. There are images from it that I probably will never be able to erase from my brain. Uh, so that's cool. Um, I don't know if I like the soundtrack too much because it just felt like my house was vibrating. Uh, and uh, the, the story was all over the place and I couldn't really solidly figure it out. I just felt like I was in a fever dream. Uh, ugh. I had a really low score for this at first. I was like, one out of 10, this is horrible. Having a conversation, it's moved up a little, but it's it's certainly not high. Uh, so it, I'll give it a four out of 10, um, but maybe it'll grow on me and then I'll, then I'll come back and I'll be like, okay, Ben, you were right and you're the most brilliant person in the world and I'm just too stupid to be able to comprehend this film. It's entirely possible that that's going to happen. But as of right now, since I finally was able to sit through it, uh, through it, um, it's it's pretty low, um, and I apologize for that. But uh, you know, kudos to the dirty fingernail uh, milk masturbation scene. That's that's always good fun. Classic. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Chat. Chat kind of agrees. Like three point five out of ten. Waste of time. Incredibly gorgeous. Uh, but I think uh, it could uh, it could be quite excellent at under half the runtime. Four out of ten. Uh, for goat milk mushrooms, some pretty low scores uh, from some people. I, I mean, out of ten, I'm sorry, we're doing this out of five. I would do um, like two and a half out of five, um, and I, I'm dinging it because typically I like full core. This is, I think, a Scandinavian full core. So I like full core. Um, I find those to typically to be interesting sorts of films. Like I just saw Midsummer, which I think destroyed the way I look at this movie. I think that really, there's something to be said for that. Like coming out of a movie that you think in the same genre is unbelievably fantastic and then seeing another movie in the same genre and feeling that it's not good. I feel like my score is going to be heavily um, heavily weighted on the fact that I just saw Midsummer and it blew me away, right? And, it, and it's a very different movie, very different movie, but it is full core and it had similar elements. And so I, I think my score may be a little harsh because of that. Um, I... I feel how largely how Ben felt about this movie, but without the zeal, without the excitement, without the um, without the same charisma he has for it. And that's fair because there's there's some films that I feel that way about that most people on this podcast are like, same thing. I got all those things, Noah, but I why are you why do you have a hard on right now? That's that's how I feel about Hagazusa with with Ben. Um, yeah, I beautiful film, it, gorgeous scenes. Uh, as much as I said the music didn't carry, the music is still good. Um, there are very unique sequences uh, of close-ups, clarity in close-ups, and then hazy other times, like I said, in the forest. Um, but overall, I was left with a, a bit too much of a question mark. I don't like movies that give me the direct answer, and it's an answer that I don't like. 
but I also don't like movies that are so open and ambiguous that I have to work this hard. I'm lazy. I'm a lazy cinemaphile. I, I, I don't want to work that hard. I want to be able to earn it, but not have to earn it to this degree. Uh, that is me. That is not you. So it's understandable if you don't feel the same way. Um, but uh, yeah, I this is a good one to end our full core on, though. You know, we've done Wicker Man. We've done Midsommar. Um, we've done this one. I, there's probably one or two other ones we've done in there that are semi-folk horror. Um, but uh, I, I'll watch the next film the director makes. You know, I'll, I'll watch another movie that this person made. I, I, I'm Hey, I'll drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, it wasn't the end of the world, but it was something where the, the fact that Shara and I feel the same way, though, that may, we, keep sent, we keep being self-deflationary. Uh, de maybe it's us. Maybe it's us. We didn't understand it. I think that may be that may be dancing around a criticism of the movie um, because clearly it it I I'm just gonna change my mind. It can't be us. It can't be me. It can't be Shara. We're just too cool and too smart. So um, yeah, very confusing movie to me. Very confusing movie to me. Yet at the same time, I can still pinpoint what this movie's about. I don't know, man. I don't know what to make of this. I'm confusing myself the more I talk about it. Uh, don't know if that's a plus or a minus. So anyway, two and a half out of five for me. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk. You uh, sort of pick up uh, uh, where you left off, Noah. I mean, what you're talking about is the the manner with which a film proves its point, or expresses its theme, or um, expresses its thesis. The manner with which a film does that is important. It's necessary to both the diegetic aspects of the film, but also in our our receipt and our understanding of the film. Let us just put it this way. Shallow Hal says that a that men should be not assholes. That's a fantastic theme. That's a wonderful theme. I would love, you know, we talked about the idea of having deadly analysis T-shirts that say "Detoxifying Masculinity One Movie at a Time." I shallow how detoxifies masculinity. Now, does the fact that it has an admirable theme make it a good movie? Not in the slightest. That movie sucks. It's just awful. And so, the manner with which a movie does the thing uh, that it sets out to do is is important to one's enjoyment of the film. And as we've sort of sussed out over the course of this podcast, uh, there, this this movie has a brilliant defender in Ben, uh, one somebody whose whose intellect I respect a lot, somebody whose uh, ability to understand this film is way beyond mine, and yet at the end of the day, I still cannot enjoy watching the film and at the end of the day i still think there are holes in the diegetic reality that the movie presents us with that the plot elements of the movie don't hold together over the course of its hour and 47 runtime which as one of our chat commenters um suggested this would be a wonderful short film that if you cut a lot of that connective tissue out and you tighten up this story, it could actually be really entertaining and really good and really engaging. It doesn't necessarily have to be entertaining. It has to be engaging. And as as Shayra's uh, sleep schedule has, has shown us, there are moments of this film that just aren't engaging enough. Um, 
But that said, like I walked out of this, I turned off this movie going, the cinematography was good. The story didn't really hold together. Thematically, I'm not really sure what it's saying. At the end of the day, I'm a 1.5 out of five stars just based upon the cinematography. Um, after listening to Ben kind of defend this film, I am up to two out of five stars. Uh, you did yeoman work, Ben, but it's the best that, I think that's the best that one could uh, expect out of this. So that's my score for the movie. Ben, close this out. Tell us, uh, tell why all three of us are completely wrong. I just, honestly, I I find it incredibly interesting that this is, again, so so polarizing. Like, it, it's it's confusing to me because I think it's clearly better than a lot of the films that we've, reviewed previously on this podcast for a number of reasons um yet if the the popular reviews like the reviews that are out there any indication and the ratings that are out there are any indication there's going to be division and i i wonder if that really is up to taste because i feel like most of us are sort of agreeing that the aesthetic of this film is fantastic like um for instance if if you sort of relate this to like Hollywood Westerns, like they have that sort of classic, again, this is set in Austria. So it's a German folk horror. It's, it's set in Austria and the Alps. Um, and they have these like wide panoramic shots that are absolutely gorgeous of the Alps. Like we have, you know, this, this sort of like close up aesthetic where we have like very detailed shots going into just like the hand and face level. Like, I mean, we have that, that variety there. That's, that's sort of indicative of like spaghetti Westerns and even about like, you know, a, a girl walks home alone at night. Like we talked about that aesthetic in that movie as well. The music is interesting. You know, we have kind of like a, a blending of clarity and of haziness. We have <clears throat> audio. I think I've never, I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen a film before that has used sound. Like I've seen in visual representation and actions that have, that have led to character development. I don't think I've seen in any other film where we saw sound lead to character development before. And I think we definitely saw that in that weird ASMR scene where we have like the sound profile change. We're not just looking through her eyes. We're hearing through her ears. We're feeling what she feels. And I think that says a lot about her character and about like about her psychology. Um, and I think that's that's magical. Like that's that's really interesting in, in a number of different ways. The story itself, I think it speaks to a lot of the things that I find interesting about films. Like obviously a lot of my highest rated films have kind of like a religious element to them, a secular bent to them. Um, they have kind of like a lack of hopefulness and sort of like a stark reality kind of like interpretation of things. And I think that's all there for me. And so like that ultimately adds up to a really high score. Like I, I can't find a lot of problem, um, but I think that's primarily because I'm lacking that criticism that you guys seem to have about the the narrative cohesion and plot development. Like I think... I think that's perfectly perfectly fine in this movie. Um, I, I think it flows together just fine, even without the dialogue. Now, I do want to say too, like interestingly enough, I've already indicated that this director, this is his feature film debut, <clears throat> and so in a number of um, film festivals, he has won um, best costume design in an international competition at Cineuphoria. He was nominated for best makeup. Are the people who worked on the film, they were they were nominated for Best Makeup, Best Art Direction, Best Sound and Effects, Best Original Music, Best Cinematography, Best Editing. In the German Film Critics Association Awards, they were nominated for Best Feature Film Debut. And the Luska F uh, Fantastic Film Fest, they won um, Best International Director in Motel X. Um, Festival International de Cinema de Terror de Lisbona, they won Best European Feature Film Award. Like, I mean, he's he's won several awards on this. And like, again, like if you go back to Rotten Tomatoes, 
95% for the critics, but 46% for the audience score. So I, I wonder myself if this is just something that people say that they like just to be hipsters and like be edgy or whatever, like act like they're smarter, like because it's an art house film. I personally find myself disagreeing with that sort of like interpretation of this because to me, it spoke volumes, like not just through the cinematography, not just through the sound, like, but also the story, the way that her character was developed and the way that she transformed the way that she, we saw her betrayed by kind of like the social mores of the time, not necessarily even just a criticism of religion, which inherently I think is there because like the priest didn't necessarily do anything to her. He seemed, he seemed sympathetic to her plight. He wanted her to join them, I think, but was overly accepting of her decision to be uh, left alone. It was really just kind of like the people who were afraid of that other and treated her badly just because she was other. And I think that was very interesting. Like, ultimately, I think this is a film about how loneliness can drive you to madness. It's about how women are ostracized in the mid mid <laughs> in uh, the Middle Ages, that was primarily by calling them witches, and it had like a religious sort of like bent to it. Um, I think it's incredibly feminist because it sort of shows like the strength of one woman, sort of like defying kind of like these social mores and sort of living the way she wants to. And you know, I think it's really even interesting because it shows things that were interpreted as magical through the popular interpretation as just someone who kind of knew how to get revenge in the way that she wanted to get revenge like obviously we see her mother dying of what is presumably the plague which is stereotypical of plague symptoms she uses rats to kill the rest of the village i mean fuck like that's that's not magic although it could be interpreted as a witchcraft it's just her getting her revenge because she was tired of being taken advantage of by these people like it's there's so much about this movie that is absolutely fantastic and i kind of even like it a little more than the witch because it doesn't rely on the supernatural and so at the end of the day, because of like all of these fantastic elements and because I think this is a fantastic first attempt by this director at a feature like film sort of bringing in German folklore and like old pagan sort of like um, uh, <laughs> rituals and wh whatever you want to call it, like he's bringing in cultural elements into this film that perhaps aren't necessarily typical of American film fare. You know, I just, I don't know, man, like there, there's a lot about this movie that I think is absolutely fantastic. And so I think I'm going to have to rate it equally to The Witch, even though I do think it's a little bit better, but I'm going to give it an equal rating because I can't go higher than 4.5 because he still doesn't beat Bergman, but it does still get a 4.5 out of 5 for me. So I think I'm ultimately the only person to recommend this movie out of this entire <laughs> podcast. It's something, it's not, a, it's not for I, everyone, man. It's definitely not for everyone. But, it. I still yeah. recommend it. I didn't get it. Maybe someone else will. Like, I don't know if that brings any, like, maybe I, I will recommend it based off of the fact that there might be people that this could really move. In my interpretation, I think that, I think a three is kind of like, I, I think Jim has also said this before. I interpret a three as being like the baseline you would sort of recommend this movie. Any lower than that, you're like, man, maybe don't watch this. I think people should still give it a shot, at least, you know, I don't know. So, like, that's kind of my baseline there. So, thank you for saying that you would recommend this, but I, I, do think it's not for everyone but i really want to support independent film and i want to support this director and i think the themes and like the interesting stuff about this film is it's something that people should try and enjoy because it's 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 fucking leagues above jump scare typical american horror you know what i mean it's, it's and, and for that and for that reason for that reason i also would recommend it i give it a two and a half out of five and just because i'm critical doesn't necessarily I mean, I wouldn't want other people to see it. In fact, I would recommend this movie specifically for the sort of person who likes horror films to which there are no supernatural elements. 
Um, you know, I, I made a video on our YouTube channel on my own called like the top YouTube, the top horror films for atheists. And I was trying to be provocative. And basically what I meant by that is like the top horror films to which there's really nothing supernatural going on, but the movie's still terrifying. I should add this to it. I mean, this should be one of those. Um, yeah. And to the extent that there's pretty much zero jump scares, um, and yet it still has that sense of dread, very drawn out sense of dread. Um, if that's the sort of horror films that do it for you, this is one of them. Um, I my low rating shouldn't be seen in, in in light of whether or not I recommend it. Now, if I if I'm hitting the ones, we're getting into martyrs territory, you know. Uh, then then yeah. Um, hey, so and let me know if my let me know if I cut out. My internet's kind of been choppy all night. Um, so for our viewers, uh, Google Hangouts is going away on August first. It is Jan uh, January. I don't know where the fuck I am. It is July twenty first, um, and on August first, this format changes. Um, so it means that we're going to have some issues doing live shows. Um, we're trying to figure out what to do now. Um, we're trying to figure out if we're going to continue doing live shows on Sunday nights, or if we'll just upload videos of us doing these things um, that we've pre-recorded and and thrown onto YouTube every Sunday night. The benefit of that is that we get to kind of edit, cut. You can watch some of our older videos like Triangle, Event Horizon, Train to Busan. Um, we did those videos in that kind of format. Um, so we're debating what we're gonna do right now. Um, as of now, next week, we're doing Videodrome. We're doing some, thrown in some, how do we not thrown in much more Cronenberg than we have now? Uh, so we're doing Videodrome next week. I'm gonna be out, but Antonio is going to be taking my spot. Um, so uh, we're going to be doing Videodrome. And then uh, in August, I'm not entirely sure what we're going to do, whether it's going to be uh, a continuation, uh, continually doing the live show that we do now, or if we're going to have videos. So we'll let you know. If you prefer one format over the other, one of the things that we were missing was we were discussing this as sort of viewer input, um, let us know in the chat. Let us know on Twitter. Uh, hit us up on Facebook if you prefer the live format like this, or if you're cool with us doing these as videos and interac interacting with your comments on those videos. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at. So we thought we'd just be transparent, let you know, hey, like one of the only cool things about YouTube anymore is going away. That's Google Hangouts. Um, so who knows? I, I, I have my reasons for thinking that's insane. But uh, yeah, so go ahead. Go ahead. No, the show's not going away. We're still going to be here every Sunday. Like we'll we'll be here. It's just the format might change. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll we'll still have content here um on sunday nights uh we did get a question how we met each other uh so the 30 second version of that is um i know sheriff and ben from our old days on youtube when we discussed atheism and christianity i was a christian apologist for a very long time and i had a fairly large youtube channel and i know Shayra from that i'm not we may have met through mutual friends i think the same with ben and then Jim is good friends with Garrett, our philosopher co-host on this podcast. They work at the same university. And um, Garrett was like, hey, you know who you'd really like to, we should bring on this podcast is Jim. And we just can't get rid of him at this point. His legs have been shown on the podcast. Um, you know, the greatest comments we get are about Jim and blowing his smoke rings to look like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. I, it, You know, there's so many good moments we've had with Jim that we figured we had to keep him. So uh, that is how we all know each other. Um, so yeah, uh, let us know what you think. I hope you enjoyed the show tonight. We'll see you next week for Videodrome. Let us know in the comments, again, what kind of format you would prefer, and we will listen to it. Um, you guys have a good night. Take care, and we will see you next week for Cronenberg's Videodrome.